Well, go ahead and grab your seat and uh, welcome, welcome in-house, welcome online. We are so glad to have you and happy Easter. Uh, what an honor to be able to be with you, a privilege to be able to leave you or lead you, not leave you, but uh, lead you this morning uh, in our time together. And I'm Doug, I'm one of the pastors here, and I get the honor of being able to take this time uh, to point us uh, to the work of Christ. If you were to talk uh, to pretty much any minister who's done a number of Christmases or Easter's, kind of those special holiday times in the year, uh, they would likely say there's two things that are unique about these times. One is it's just an absolute privilege to be able to be in this role and be able to point people to the work of Christ, whether it's the birth or the resurrection of Christ, it's just an honor and a delight to be able to do that. The other thing they, that they would say is it's a challenge. And it's a challenge because people come together and, and, and they are coming from all different places and both uh, not just geographic, but just places and their understanding and their walk with the Lord and where that's at and trying to bring all that together as well as there's a thing called familiarity with the subject that, that can cause it to be something that kind of gets in the way a little bit. In fact, two quotes, I've shared these with our church in the past, but I'll just bring them. Uh, William Birnbach, an award-winning uh, advertising creative director from the 1960s and 70s. I know that's a long time ago. Uh, I was around then. Uh, he said this, audience familiarity breeds apathy. When you're familiar with something, you just are familiar with it. And it kind of becomes a little bit, uh, there's an apathy that can happen there. Go back even further in American history and you come to the 17 and 1800s and you meet William Hazlitt. He was a great essayist and literary critic. And he said this, familiarity takes off the edge of admiration. But we are really here today to admire, to adore, to exalt uh, the work that God has done. And yet our familiarity with the subject of it can kind of take off that edge of our admiration where it becomes a, a bit normal. But we don't want that to happen. I mean, think about it. People who live in the Rocky Mountains, they wake up in the morning and they see the Rocky Mountains. They go to bed at night and they see the Rocky Mountains. It's just normal to them. It's familiar to them. Hey, we're here from the Midwest and I'm a Midwest boy, uh, not familiar. The Rocky Mountains are something awesome to behold when you're there. The telephone that you keep in your pocket or you have in your purse, the telephone that we keep in our pocket, have in our purses, it has more computer power than the lunar module from the Apollo 13 mission in 1970. And we have that in our pocket and it's just everyday kind of news for us. And then add to that, the, the, the microwave. I literally remember in junior high going to Fred, one of my friends, uh, houses and, and they were really rich. And, and we went to this house and he had this thing called a microwave. And he's like, watch this. Took popcorn kernels, put it in there. And I'm telling you, it's my mind is poof, like with the popcorn. How can it do that? Yeah, I am that old. And then you have thin screen TVs. Like what are with those? Those are the coolest things ever. And LED lights. Oh, and here's one, the clapper. I mean, how amazing is that? But to us, that's just typical, right? Hey, listen, we come here today to talk about the resurrection of Christ. And sometimes we can be so familiar with the subject that the corners of our admiration get knocked off. 
And so I have a challenge today of kind of, and I want to challenge you of, of saying, hey, let, let's not let our admiration for this, let's not let it just become, well, a moment that we celebrate in the year that we're supposed to do. Let's take this in and let's behold that. In fact, that's a word that I have for us today, behold. Uh, let's not remember what I mean that by that is definition. By definition, in this context, the word remember means to recollect something, to recollect an, a, a fact, to recollect an experience or a moment in time or event that happened. It's just simply to recollect it. Uh, let's not do that today. Instead, let's behold it. Behold is amped up. It is, like, uh, it is like remembering on steroids. It's, it's uh, actually this intention to lean into, to grab a hold, and to walk away with something with the expectation that I'm going to walk away with something as a result of beholding it. In fact, the Bible uses the word behold some 1,100 plus times. The very first chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter one, the word behold is in there twice. The very last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22, the bo word behold is in there twice. 1100 sometimes in between all that. God wants us to behold, not just to remember information, not just to remember data, not just to remember an experience, but to behold, to lean in. And, and let's do that, okay? Yeah, let, let's work at that today. Let's take this, let's behold the resurrection. And with that, uh, would you open your Bibles, if you have it with you, to Matthew 27. Matthew 27. Um, if you want to grab one of the Bibles behind some of the seats there, it's page 783. We're big about the Bible around here. I just love having people have their Bible open, if you have that with you. And just to be able to look at it, whether it's digital or not, I'm a paper guy. And uh, uh, having it on our laps. Today I have five words for five scenes that really come from the last five paragraphs of the Gospel of Matthew. And uh, we're just gonna take the next 30 minutes or so and we're just gonna lean into these and, and see uh, what we can behold out of them. I will note this, it's interesting. Matthew finishes his Gospel, the writing of the good news of Jesus Christ. He finishes it by focusing on the things really mainly happening around the scene of the resurrection. Matthew doesn't like get into the depths of the theological ramifications of the resurrection. He, he doesn't even tell really even what to do as a result of it. He's just wanting us to see these scenes that are happening around the resurrection. And that's the goal of today. I just want us to behold. I want us to enter beholding. I want us to walk out beholding. That, that's the whole goal of today that we see these scenes and, and they're all over the place. So let's grab a hold of them. God help us, right? God, help us as we dive into your word. First word is entombed. The first scene is the entombed scene. I'm going to pick up in verse 57, chapter 27. Uh, Pastor Nate last Sunday actually uh, took us through this chapter, and or this uh, paragraph. It included this paragraph. I want to uh, bring it back and start there. Christ has been crucified on the cross. And we, at verse 57, when it was evening. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named who? Joseph, who also was a disciple, a follower of Jesus. He went to Pilate and he asked for the body of Jesus. And then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen shroud, laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And, and he rolled, or he had rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb, and he went away. Verse 61, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. 
Just a couple things as we're trying to behold everything that's happening here. Verse 57, it's evening. Evening in that period of time would have been about 6 p.m. when the sun is starting to go down. It's the beginning of the Sabbath day. It begins at right around this time as the sun is heading down and it's about to get dark. By the way, Christ has been crucified as along with the other two next to him. A couple realities that took place in that day was Roman law held that the body of anyone crucified was to remain up on the cross. By the way, just if you're new to this, uh, Jesus being crucified, he was not the first person. I mean, this had been going on for a period of time. The Romans were experts at crucifixion. They knew how to, they had it down to a science and an art of taking someone to the point of death, keeping them alive, and then tipping them over in that. And so they're hanging on the cross. It's in the evening. Roman law had it to where uh, you left the body up on the cross. There, there's a concept that comes out of that. Let, let me say it in Greek. It's ooh. <laughs> okay, it's the international understanding of that word. Uh, ooh. They would have someone hanging on a cross and they would leave them up there for days, even weeks. Um, they did it to make a statement. Don't commit high crime here. Can you imagine? Body up, out in the open for days, even weeks. I'm telling you, ooh, we can't even fathom that in our day, but that's what would happen. Cross that with the, with the Jews in that day. The Jewish law was that you were to bring a body down off the cross and bury it and not have it hanging up overnight. Interesting. Uh, here we're coming in, we're told we're coming into the evening time. So one of the questions of someone reading this at the time is, is so what are they going to do with the body if they're Jewish? And so what we find here is we have this guy, Joseph of Arimathea. He is a Jew. He goes to Pilate, who is a Roman governor, and he asks for the body. Uh, part of me asks, hey, where are the disciples in this? I mean, the disciples are Jewish. They, they understood what was going on. Well, where's Jesus' own family in, in this and taking the body down and putting it in burial? Um, I want to, let's think the best first. Let's do that. Our world doesn't do that very often. Let, let's go there first, think the best. They are probably just in utter shock right now and grief. And so let's give that to him, but it is an interesting fact. Why weren't they there to help bring the body down? But Joseph of Arimathea is there, and I bring all of that to the table because it just shows how kind of him to do this. And he just didn't want to toss his, Jesus' body somewhere random. He wanted to put it in somewhere appropriate, as he was a follower of Christ as well. So he has the body put in, in a tomb. Uh, that tomb is, has a stone that is rolled in front of it. And uh, by the way, him going to Pilate was quite a brave thing. Why? Because Pilate was normally used to leaving bodies up on the cross. So Pilate, in saying, take the body down in verse 58, Pilate is actually going against Roman law. I think it deals Pilate's cards. Pilate all along through this knows that Jesus did not commit high treason. And that Jesus shouldn't be up there, but he's just in this situation where he's letting it happen. And then we come to verse 61, Mary and Mary, bless their hearts. They are there sitting opposite the tomb and grieving the death of Jesus. Last note about law in that day. Roman law held that you are not to publicly grieve 
the death of anyone crucified on the cross. But there they are, grieving. And I'd like to meet these two ladies. I mean, their life has just been blown apart. What now? Where do we go from here? We have an entombed scene, and then we go to a secured scene. We kind of go from this loving scene with Joseph caring for the body and, and the Mary and Mary grieving over us, and now we kind of go over to those who, uh, I'll just put it in normal lay terms, those who hate Jesus' guts. We're going to join them now and see what's going on with them. That's where Matthew takes us. Let me read verses 62 to 66. Now, the next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate. How sad is this? The, the spiritual leaders, the governing leaders of Israel gather before Pilate, and, and they're about to try and bring down a con deal. And they say, sir, to Pilate, uh, we remember how that imposter, that deceiver, uh, they call him while he was still alive. He said, after three days, I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day. By the way, interesting fact, uh, in that day, the, the common thought was that the soul of someone who died hovered over the body for three days, and then after three days, that soul left. So why three days? Because then after three days, they're dead, dead. And so Jesus has said, after three days, I will rise. And so they're saying, secure it, lest the disciples go and steal him away and tell the people that he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be uh, worse than the first. And Pilate said to them, you have guards of soldiers. Uh, they had their own group of Roman soldiers that they could direct around. You go and you make it secure as you can. So they went, made the tomb secure by selling, uh, sealing the stone and setting a guard. Verse 63, they call Jesus an imposter. They call him a deceiver. Why would they say that? Well, because Jesus, one, he said that he was the Messiah. Uh, all, going all the way back as a church a little while ago, we were in Genesis chapter three. There would be one born of a woman who would come and deal Satan a lethal blow. That was become called the Messiah in the Old Testament. And Jesus said, I am the Messiah. And to claim that you are the Messiah, if you aren't the Messiah, let's just say it's a really bad idea. And Jesus is claiming that he's the Messiah and they think he's a liar in that. Also, they claim, uh, Jesus claimed that he will rise after three days and they're like, that ain't gonna happen in this. And so they do not like Jesus, so they want to shut him down. And so in this, they ask for uh, this tomb to be secured. I wanna make one quick note. It says in there that they quote Jesus as saying, Jesus said, I will rise from the dead. In the Greek form that I will rise, the verb of that, it's in a passive form. That means that the action of that is that the person who the action is happening doesn't do the action, the action happens to them. Uh, this will be a lunch conversation for you. So what happens is, is what they're saying, what Jesus is saying is, is that Jesus does not rise himself out of the dead. God the Father will rise him out. God the Father will rise God the Son out. It's a cool thing. We could go there deeper theology, but I'll keep it there with what's going on. And then we are moving along and we come to these guards that are unique to Matthew. They're placed by the tomb. Uh, how interesting is it that God will even use those people who despise him to be able to place witnesses right at the tomb where the work's gonna be done. 
And uh, God's going to turn it all around for his glory, entombed and secured. And here are these Jewish leaders, they think they have this, all their bases covered, everything's wrapped up, everything's taken care of. Finally, this annoyance called Jesus is going to be gone from them, and they've got everything sealed and all the doors closed, and yet the door is about to open. And uh, here we go, go God. And we go to the next scene, a raised scene. And oh, my friends. The raised scene, this is something altogether new. It is out with the old, is it in with the new? It is out with the dark, it is in with the light. And here we have this raised scene, verses 1 through 10, chapter 28. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. They go again to see it. Okay, I'm reading the English Standard Version. If you don't have the English Standard Version, you're missing a word that is our keyword for today. What's the keyword for today? Behold. Uh, it's actually five times in the original language here. And so uh, I'm going to have, have you say it out. If you have English Standard Version, when we come to it, say it out for everyone else who doesn't. My wife reads the New International Version, so we tease each other on that. Here we go, verse two, and, okay, a little bit more emphatic, and, now we're on, team. There was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven, came and rolled back the stone, and sat on it. <laughs> I love that. His appearance was like lightning, his clothing white as snow, and for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. They weren't dead men, but they became like dead men because they were so stunned by what was going on. And may I also know this, they're not asleep. But the angel, verse 5, said to the women, do not be afraid. Clearly they were afraid. I would have been afraid. Like, holy moly, what is happening here? Do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. By the way, how cool is that? This angelic being knows exactly what's going on even in their thinking and what's going on. I love that. Who was crucified, verse six, he is not here for he has risen. Oh, by the way, as he said, come see the place where he lay. Verse seven, then go quickly, tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. Here we go. And... He is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. Uh, so they departed quickly from the tomb with fear. Oh my, and great joy. Oh wow, and ran to tell his disciples. And here another time, emphatically, and Jesus met them, Mary and Mary, and said, greetings. I, I have no idea what the inflection was like in that. Uh, but uh, bam, um, greetings. Greetings. Hey, what's up, ladies? And they came up and they took hold of his feet and worshiped him. They worshiped him. They knew something God happened. And then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go, tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. So Mary and Mary go to the tomb in the morning following the Sabbath Verses two through four, there's this great earthquake. This angel of the Lord descends. Uh, Matthew's eyes are just on the key action that's happening. This angel of the Lord descends. <laughs> he, he moves a stone and then he sits on it. This is, this is like, it's coming down. The earth is shaking. He comes, moves the stone and sits on it. Ta-da! Right? 
I mean, how cool is this? Oh, keep in mind, we don't see Jesus now walking out of the grave. Hold that thought. He's rolled the stone. It's this ta-da moment sitting on top of the stone. And he's like lightning. He's white as snow. And I think Matthew is like, you've got to behold this. Hey, friend, so often in my life growing up, in my time in going to church, and when I would hear the story, it would oftentimes just be kind of, well, familiarity breeds apathy. We just read right past this and go, okay, cool event in human history. Maybe one in the top 10. Let me say this. This is the most stunning event in all of human history. All of it. As a church, we have been doing some looking back. We've been going back to Genesis. uh, Created by God, placed by God, uh, broken by choice. And yet Psalm 139, God still knows us and pursues us. And then we have been recently here in the last few weeks taking a look at what's ahead and what the Bible says and and the reality, because we want to be real about things. And the Bible says there's a time to die, there's a time to stand, and for those in Christ, there's a time to reign. And we've looked back, we've looked forward, and last Sunday we come to the cross, we come to the resurrection. This is like the fulcrum point, right in the middle of it all. This is the turning point of events. Creation was amazing, what's ahead is amazing, and this is the point. This is the item. And when we read this, don't just get in that place where it's like, yawn, another cool event in human history. No, if this is real, this is unlike any other event in all of human history. And Mary and Mary are, div- are divinely informed here of what happened. They're seeing it, and then they're invited into the tomb. Hey, hey uh, the reason I just brought all that up is because when Mary and Mary go into the tomb, by the way, was the stone rolled away to let Jesus out, or was the stone rolled away to let people in? I vote the latter. Because they didn't see Jesus walk out. It was to let them in. And you cannot tell me that these two dear ladies, they walked out differently than they walked in. I mean, when they come in and they're looking and they're seeing that where a body is supposed to be laying, raped, uh, uh, wrapped in, in like a hundred plus pounds of, of spices in that day and how it was in the complexity of how they would wrap a body in that time, especially for someone who had money like Joseph of Arimathea. And then it's just no body, but just the stuff there. You're like, um, if I remember right, this isn't usually how it works. Right? When someone's died and put in a tomb and you go in, normally their body's still there, but not this time. And they walk in and they t- behold what's going on and they walk out and life from there on out is totally different for them because they have come into an experience with the resurrection of Christ that alters their life. And entombed and secured and raised. And then we go from that scene to the fourth one, a bribed scene. Verses 11 through 15. While they were going, Mary and Mary, here's our word. While they were going, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers. How sad. Governing leaders, spiritual leaders giving money 
conning the situation. Verse 13, and said, tell the people, his disciples came by night and stole them away while we were asleep. Uh, hey, isn't it ironic? Just a little bit ago, they were talking about how to have it so the disciples couldn't say that. Now, after the resurrection has actually happened, they tell the guards to say that. And, uh, as, and if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him. In other words, we'll bribe him too and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money, the guards did, did as they were directed, and this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Lies and deceit put Jesus on the cross. Actually, Jesus put himself on the cross. Lies and deceit followed the cross, and lies and deceit followed the resurrection. That's how the world deals with things. And yet God in it all is doing exactly what God has designed to take place. And then there's this whole thing of concocting a story that Jesus really didn't raise from, rise from the dead. Hey, there's theories on that going on to this day. Let me give you a couple of them. There's the not Jesus theory. There's the claim that Jesus actually was not the one who was on the cross and therefore not the one who was put in the tomb. In fact, that's what the Quran says. The Quran says that Jesus never went on the cross and therefore Jesus never rose from the dead. There's also the stolen corpse theory. That, that's really what, what they were uh, suggesting to have take place with it, that the guards fell asleep. By the way, it just makes no sense in the whole movement of it all because we're told that Mary and Mary go in the morning when the light is coming up that all of this goes down. It's not in the middle of the night while they're sleeping. It's in the morning as the sun is rising up. By the way, in this, the guards, the guards, if they fell asleep, Roman guards, if they fell asleep on duty, it was considered dereliction of duty and automatic death. These guards, however many there were, they had every reason to stay awake, called their life. And the fact that if they said that they fell asleep, even that would result in their death. On it. I could go into other reasons, but it's not that. Then there's the Jesus swooned theory. That Jesus was crucified, but, but he actually didn't die. He came really close to death. And then when they put him in the tomb, it was kind of like a Gatorade shot. And, you know, he, he, he revived and came and then he rolled the stone away. I'm just going to tell you that, that is so blank of understanding what really happened in that time. It is just absent of the knowledge of what crucifixion was when the Romans would do this in their process. They knew how to take someone to death like it was an art and a science. And they knew when someone was dead. And by the way, even the leaders knew that he was dead. I'm just telling you, the reason I'm bringing all of these up is, is if the resurrection is fake news, then you and I need to go and read uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 14, that says it's time, if, if the resurrection didn't happen, it's time to stop wasting your time with this faith and it's a lie. But it did happen. And therefore it is all together different. If the resurrection really did happen, friends, this isn't in the top 10 of human events. This is the event of human events. And it changes life. It changes eternity. Because death was conquered and sin was conquered. And his work is made available to all who would receive that. As many as believed in him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. 
And this is the testimony that God has given eternal life and this life is in his son. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Is that you? The resurrection is the fulcrum point of it all. In fact, Lee Strobel, a former atheist and an award-winning uh, legal writer for the Chicago Tribune, writes this about his story. He said this, in short, I did not become a Christian because God promised I would have an even happier life than I had as an atheist. He never promised any such thing. Indeed, following him, following the Lord would inevitably bring divine demotions in the eyes of the world. Rather, I became a Christian because the evidence was so compelling that Jesus really is the one and only Son of God who proved his divinity by rising from the dead. And that meant following him was the most rational and logical step I could possibly take. Following Christ isn't some emotional thing. Following Christ is based on facts and reality of it all and the work of the resurrection. And that transformation showed in Strobel's life. And by the way, that's our last word, uh, transformed. Because the final scene, the final paragraph we have here in the book of Matthew is a transformed scene with the disciples. Let me read that. It's commonly called the Great Commission. You may have heard that. But there's something that's oftentimes missed that I want to bring in in light of our conversation today. Let me pick up verse 16. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee. How many disciples? That's right, Judas is now gone. There are 11, keep that in mind. They go to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they went up and gave him a high five. They went up and gave him a bro hug. You know, they did a chest butt. No, this is not like a bro hug thing. They went up and they what? They worshiped him because they also knew that this is not normal. This is not just my bro friend that came up from the dead. Something is crazy happening here. And they worshiped him. And I love these next three words. I love the honesty of the Bible. You see this? But some doubted. Hey, the 11 are there. And some of the 11 are going, uh, what? At this very moment, there, some of the 11 disciples are like, wait a second. I don't just go randomly into random things and, and just think randomly about randomness. Uh, like Things have to fit together. And I know this, what's happening right now is not normal. And here's what's so cool. And Jesus still addresses them, just like the others. Because I think the Lord knows they're going to get it. Maybe you're in a place kind of where some of those disciples are like, you know, this whole resurrection of Christ, like, ah, nah, I don't know what to do with this yet. Hey, hang in. I think the Lord is calling you and drawing you. Think about it. Lean into it. It's okay. God wants people who think. And some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Here's the last time, here's the word, last time emphatically, and 
I am with you always to the end of the age. Hey, one of the things that's often missing here, missed here in this last paragraph is the transformation that's happening here for the disciples themselves. You know, I would think that these disciples, they were invited by Jesus. They said, hey, Jesus said, hey, come follow me and observe. And so they hang with him for three years. And then all of a sudden it goes really like off the edge and Christ is crucified. And then he's risen from the dead. And you would think, man, this is the exclamation point. And you would think it's like, hey, our purpose is now done. Let's all go home happier, seeing the story and, and finishing with an awesome exclamation point. But that's not how it goes. It's not the end of the story. It's the beginning of the story. All of the prior three years was the lead into this moment. It was, it was follow and observe, and now it's go and make. I'm telling you, the disciples' lives are transformed as a result of the resurrection. They didn't walk away like, hey, props, Christ. Good for you, man. Way to go. You showed us. They walk away utterly changed. Life committed to the Lord. Like my fishing business, we'll just, we'll just it hasn't been running well for the last three years anyway. Life changes as a result of the resurrection. The old is gone, the new has come. By the way, in fact, that leads me here to the final thing I'll, I'll say. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he, she, is a new creation. By the way, not a new version, not an improved alteration, a new creation. It then goes on and says, the old has passed away and it has the word, behold, behold, the new has come. This is what's happening in, in all of this. The resurrection is about that. If anyone, in, if anyone is in Christ, he, she is a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. By the way, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, that's what we're talking about next Sunday. We're going there. We're going to drive the stake in the ground next Sunday. This is the preemptive into next Sunday. We're going to go there and we're going to take a look because this is where the transformation happens. They are made new out of all this. But today, our word is what? Behold. And I don't want to leave behold. I've noticed about me and our culture and particularly us Americans, we don't like to sit in a, in a, in a realm of just thinking. We don't ponder very well. I would say we don't behold very well. We're like, hear it, on to the next thing. You know, go to the next run. Hey, hold. I have an ask for you this week. I'm going to ask that this week we don't leave the resurrection, but we behold it all this coming week. And just, Lord, what is all this about? Like, why was this even necessary? What was going, and if you need help thinking that through, we'd love to help you through. But I'm asking that we do the hard work of sitting and beholding. Next week, we're gonna drive the stake in the ground. But this week, let's behold. And let's just take this in. God, boots on the ground, on the cross, risen from the grave, What does this mean?
So we're going to have the choir and the worship team come and um, just move us. I'm even not going to stop here in this. We're just going to continue in this movement of it here. I just don't even want to take like a close your eyes and pray moment here because there's a tendency for us to move on to the next thing. I want it just to continue and to move here right now. And let's behold and, and, and let's, let's take it in. Uh, Lord, help us with that, right? God, uh, you came. You, you died on the cross, paying the, the, the penalty for what we deserve for our sin and our brokenness. And, and, and you sealed that deal by rising from the dead. You have conquered death. You have conquered sin. Lord, what from here? Lord, we want to think rightly and we want to see you rightly and we want to understand this deeper, right? We want to, to pull this in. So if you would, would you stand? And we're just going to continue on in our thought and in our movement of beholding here in, 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 in words and in declaration and in song and exaltation. Let's just continue beholding right now together. God, here we come. We're continuing to lean in, right? Uh, let's do it.